And I believe he's the wealthiest guy in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And he's running for president. And, you know, this is going to be another example of a long shot of long shots who is running for president of the United States and can make an impact on the race because he has millions of dollars at his disposal. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, June 15th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about an unusual long shot in the 2024 Republican primary, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. I say unusual because Burgum has establishment GOP connections, political experience, Midwestern pedigree, billions of dollars from a career in tech, and important connections in Silicon Valley. So does this long shot have an actual shot? Teddy and I take a look. And later, Lauren Sherman swings by to discuss the Yellowstone-inspired Hollywood billionaire making a huge bet on cowboy culture and why he might be looking at Levi's next. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. We're going to talk about something extremely sexy, titillating, just like you're going to lose your minds when you hear how exciting this podcast is that I'm about to do with Teddy Schleifer. It's about North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Bob, the producer, insert some applause noise. Okay. Teddy, who the hell is Doug Burgum? Because he's running for the Republican presidential nomination. Doug Burgum is on the rise, folks. So so Burgum is one of the increasingly long list of long shots who are running for president of the United States. He's the current governor of North Dakota. He's interesting to me because he is actually a tech guy. I mean, he, mm-hmm. from a relationship standpoint, has probably the deepest ties to the industry of anybody that I cover. He is someone who is like personal friends with Steve Ballmer. He you know, sold his company to, to Bill Gates and to Microsoft a software company a long time ago. And because of that, he is pretty rich. I mean, he's a billionaire. I believe he's the wealthiest guy in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And he's running for president. And you know, this is going to be another example of a, a long shot of long shots who has money upon money, who is running for president of the United States and can make an impact on the race in kind of a unusual way because he has millions of dollars at, at his disposal. And I've been following him because of his tech ties. He's actually in Silicon Valley this week raising money. Mm-hmm. He's not totally self-funding this race, which is somewhat unusual. Mm-hmm. But you know, he is out there kind of using his tech relationships to give him some like credibility with at least elites. We're not we're not here saying Doug Burgum is be president of the United States, but there is an elite conversation about him that obviously has not resonated yet with voters. But he's going to spend the money that he's made from his years in tech to try to, I guess, make the case. Yeah. I mean, I think we obviously introduced him as a long shot. He is a long shot, but he's different than like a Herman Cain or a Michelle Bachman or 
Vivek Ramaswamy, like he does, if you dig into it a little bit, he's got these connections in Silicon Valley. Like you said, he's got a ton of money. If you look at his record, he's Trumpy to an extent, but he's not like a rabid MAGA Trumper. And he comes off almost like a Jeb Romney type. Typically, Mm -hmm. your long shot outsiders are either Herman Cain, Ron Paul, gadflies, or they're outsider billionaires running almost like as an independent, like your Howard Schultz. Uh, sorry, as an actual independent, Howard Schultz is a good example of that, or yep. Tom Steyer inside the Democratic primary, who, you know, those folks were, uh, they were outsiders. They weren't actual politicians. Like Doug Burgum has been a governor. He has been on the RGA fundraising circuit. He's got consultants who are not new to politics. You know, it stretches the mind a little bit to think that he's, you know, should be mentioned in the same breath as like Ron DeSantis or whatever. But if he qualifies for any Republican debate and you have to hit 1% in like three national polls to qualify for a GOP debate, he could make an impression on voters because he's not like an Andrew Yang, like total rando, like running for president. Like he does have credibility as governor. And the only other thing I'll say is he's from North Dakota. If you're from North Dakota, you can go to Iowa and talk to Iowans pretty easily. It's the same demo, <laughs> same demo of Republican voters. Sure, and he, and he's running as a, I guess the the, the the line from his announcement, which got some attention or, or, or cringe, was that like something about how, you know, in North Dakota, woke is just what we do in the morning to feed the cows or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, I mean, I think, I think these things are related where, you know, no one knows who this guy is and he can introduce himself to voters because of the money, right? Where, where, you know, he has started this campaign with a $3 million ad buy, like already, like I was looking at something earlier today, like he is currently the highest this week in, in Republican presidential spending in Iowa on TV and radio. He is the highest spender. He's spending a million dollars on TV and radio this week in Iowa. That's more wow. than Santa Super PAC. That's more than Tim Scott. You know, as a self-funder, you can just immediately plop down a lot of cash, you know, early in the race, get you no know, ad rates for candidates, not Super PACs. And so right now, People are going to know who Doug Burgum is by the end of the primary. Like, you know, yes. love him or hate him. And like an- another person to mention here is Vivek Ramaswamy, who's also put a bunch of money into this race. He's put $10 million of his, of his own money into the campaign. It's not, quote unquote, what most people think of as fair that like rich guys can just get their message out in, in a way that, you know, long shots who are not rich cannot. But ultimately, their their message will be heard. And that's just kind of the way the system works. So like Burgum's going to have the opportunity to make the case. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's putting a million dollars down this week. Who's to say he's not going to put a million dollars down for the next, you know, half year, 26 weeks of, you know, 26 million bucks. That, that seems plausible. Mm-hmm. You know, the cautionary tales here are, are people like Mike Bloomberg, right, who spent a billion dollars of his own money in, in 2020 and got a few delegates and, you know, kind of exited the race in disgrace. And that's just kind of it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be president of the United States. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win. But it does mm-hmm. mean that Bergam's going to have the opportunity to get his message out in a way that like Asa Hutchison is not. So I think it's worth taking Burgum more seriously than other long shots. You know, this is going to be a long primary. There's going to be like, call it now, there's going to be like some debate where like Burgum says like something mildly entertaining or evocative. <laughs> and, you know, people will be like, is this the beginning Whoa. of the Doug Burgum boomlet? Right. So easy prediction is the, the money is going to give him an opportunity to, you know, make a debate stage because he can buy ads or at least be relevant in, in Washington parlance. Yeah. 
um, yeah. in a way that other people will not. I think it's interesting to compare him to Ramaswamy, actually, because Vivek Ramaswamy, business guy, he's written these books about like woke corporations, hottest thing to come out of Cincinnati this year, other than Ellie De La Cruz. But Vivek has <laughs> I, taken- I didn't realize he was from Cincinnati. Okay. Oh yeah, Cincinnati. He's not as hot as Joe Burrow, obviously. Sure. <laughs> Who is? But Vivek has kind of taken the Pete Buttigieg approach to earned media as well, which is- do every interview. Like he's not afraid to go on CNN, MSNBC. He does every podcast. He'll do like Steve Bannon's show. Like he's just mm-hmm. all, everywhere. And so, yes, he's been spending money, but he's also captured some single digit in the polls attention for taking his message everywhere in the press and yeah. in our media. Burgum, yeah. to avoid the fate, I think, of Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, actually, needs to not just spend shitloads of money because like both of those guys were all over radio, all over billboards. They were like, you know, recruiting delegates in like Guam. Like they were, it was an entirely a paid media strategy that bumped them up in the polls at some point. And this is true in both democratic and Republican primaries. You do need to capture the hearts and minds of voters in debates in earned media, through your campaign events, et cetera. Like you do need that stamp of credibility as an actual candidate outside the money. And so Burgum, by the way, again, totally plausible he can do this. We just haven't seen it yet. He might spend a million dollars a week in Iowa and that gets you a lot of (laughs) paid media points, but he's got to sort of like prove himself on the stump a little bit, do some big interviews, do the debates. If he can combine both the paid and earned media aspects, that's when you become a serious candidate because I mean, I remember like landing in South Carolina before the primary in 2020. And like, I went to see my grandma in Greenville first and I was driving in from the Greenville Spartanburg airport, just listen to local radio to see what ads are running. And like Steyer had every ad on like black gospel radio. He had mm. every billboard and like, you know, he finished like with like one or 2% of the vote in that primary where he staked his claim. We've never seen a campaign where paid media alone works in a primary, certainly not a general. Yeah, Peter, I was listening to your podcast with Ben earlier this week and, and you know, you made the point that like so much of like the media narratives are really crystallizing these debates. And I think the advantage that money can give people is especially for these long shots who have to get forty thousand donors, is the ability to make the debate. And you can kind of I mean in this day and age you can kind of buy donors. You know, you could spend a lot of money on digital ads and just buy 40,000, you know, $1 donations. I'm obviously glossing over lots of the technicalities here. And the the money isn't not only for like, you know, styrish buying of actual votes, it can buy you a chance to get like actual, you know, make real connections with voters. So that's sort of it's an indirect way the money can help. I wouldn't be surprised if Burger made the stage because he can just harvest 40,000 donations at, you know, some ridiculous customer acquisition costs, but you know, he'll get it done. <laughs> Uh, one more thing before we go, like sometimes these outsider long shot candidates have a gimmick. And I remember back in 2008, Mike Huckabee had the flat tax thing. Burgum proposed like basically restructuring North Dakota's tax code to eliminate taxes for low income earners and then put in a 1.5% tax rate for people with higher incomes. It's like basically a flat tax. So, you mm-hmm. know, if you if you do the Steve Forbes thing and like run on flat tax you know that can get you some attention in a caucus or a primary as well and we'll see if he does that teddy uh, i i wish we were in that income bracket we are not but thank you so much for joining us and entertaining the people who are in that income bracket who listen to puck see you all in fargo (laughs) 
When we come back, Lauren Sherman is here to talk about whether Levi's is about to get even more cowboy. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Lauren Sherman with an update from the fashion business universe. Hello. Hey, Ben. How are you? Good. Lauren, you had some great reporting earlier this week on this guy, Thomas Tull. He's a Hollywood billionaire who sold legendary entertainment to the Chinese for a lot of money. And then he he suddenly sort of reinvented himself, it seems like, as this major player in, um, I guess you would call it like sort of the the Yellowstone-inspired events and fashion business. He kind of came out of nowhere with this holding company that's buying up rodeos and bull riding and so on. He's getting into Western fashion, too. First of all, how did this story come across your radar? So about almost a year ago, a source of mine said, without prompting, you should look into this guy, Thomas Tull. He was a movie producer. He does work that's super, super data driven. He's investing now in AI. He was a tech investor before he was a movie producer. And everything he does is about data, all data driven. He's investing a ton through his another holding company called Talco that's Pittsburgh based in startups, et cetera. He's an investor in Oculus Rift, all these different things. Alongside all of that, he has started, as you said, Ben, kind of scooping up all these Western related things. He owns the American Rodeo. He's created another horse event. He backs the first professional bull riding competition in the US, like all this stuff. And it's under this holding company called Teton Ridge, which is named after this property he bought up in Idaho. And he's bought tons and tons and tons of land in Idaho in particular. The Wall Street Journal pegged it to $30 million, but I was told that it's like multiples of that. It's just tons of it. So he wants to sort of not only own Western events, et cetera, kind of capitalizing on the popularity of Yellowstone. He's definitely friends with Taylor Sheridan, et cetera. But he also just like wants to own the Western experience overall. And that includes fashion. And anyone who sort of reads anything about fashion or just like looks on the street could see that cowboy boots, denim shirts, things like that have sort of become much more popular in recent years. Those are the kinds of products that never go out of style totally. There's always a customer for them, an enthusiast. But right now, I think that BOF said that the searches for denim shirts and cowboy boots were up 240% in the last year. So it's it's definitely a thing. And it's all sort of related. And so Toll, he invested in this direct-to-consumer cowboy boots brand that's actually... They claim they made the first cowboy boot. It's called Hire. It's set to launch this summer. The family who founded it bought the trademark back. Now, Teton Ridge, I think, is they're definitely a part owner. I think they own about half of the business and they're helping relaunch this cowboy boots brand. The idea, again, is to go direct 
to consumer, not sell it in stores. That way you don't have to charge as much, but you can get a similar margin. So their boots are going to be like 340 bucks, where if you look at something like Luchese, those boots are like a thousand bucks. So he has the cowboy boots brand. And so my friend from last summer said, you know, what I have also heard is that he's interested in buying Levi's. So what I know for sure, and and a spokesperson for Toll and Teton Ridge and all of his different entities was pretty adamant that that's not true. I mean, buying Levi's would be a very big undertaking. Its market cap is over $5 billion. It's nearly $6 billion, which means like you're talking an $8 billion transaction, at least to get shareholders on board, that sort of thing. So it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And he says he's not interested. I know someone who was in a conversation with Teton Ridge about this and actually multiple people. And it's definitely come up in the conversation. So we'll see what happens. Maybe nothing will ever happen. Maybe it'll happen five or 10 years. But the point being that like no one else is sort of taking the culture of American West and trying to capitalize on it in this way. And not only through events and things, but also through products. And so it's a really interesting story to sort of pick apart and figure out why does this make sense right now? As fashion all usually is, it's very reflective of what's happening in the culture. And from what I know, conversations that Tool and his team have had with people is that he is very interested in this idea of the American West not being a red state thing or not being a blue state thing, but kind of uniting the country. If you think about Yellowstone, of course, a narrative has been that it appeals to people who feel alienated by coastal elitism. Yeah, this is probably the thing that is funniest to me about this whole story is that Tull is obviously inspired by the success of Yellowstone. I presume he also has like a fondness for Western culture, unless he's just such a purely data-driven guy that he sees that like money is going here and he wants to capitalize on it. But you could not actually make up a better villain in the actual Yellowstone show. I don't know if you watch it. It's obviously like a very over-the-top melodrama. Even within the context of that show, a guy like Tall, who is a Hollywood billionaire who made a lot of his money selling a company to the Chinese, moves to Pittsburgh and then sort of appears out of nowhere in, you know, Montana or Idaho or whatever, and and starts buying up ranches and rodeos. Like, you could not make this up. Yeah, I've only watched a couple episodes, but I get it. I think if you talk to people on his team, they would say the people in Idaho love him. They're fine with it. He bought a lot of this land from other billionaires. So, and he clearly (laughs) has romanticized, you know, you hear him, he's done interviews about he's a part owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm from Pittsburgh. So I have like a very particular sense of what it means to be a Steelers fan and go Steelers for people who are from there. But I think like he definitely romanticizes this idea of what America could have been. But at the same time, he doesn't want it to be political. He wants it to be cultural. He's a big noted donor of several Democratic candidates. If you look on Forbes, he's all over who donated to whom, those kinds of lists. He may be the villain, but he sees himself as the hero. Yeah, Lauren, I want to ask you more about this Levi's rumor. And and to be clear, you said you'd reached out and people sort of in the worlds of Tall and Levi's had shot this down. But nevertheless, the, the fact that people are even talking about this is interesting. It sounded like Levi's in some way may be sort of a soft target for an activist investor or even like a take private bid at some point in the future. I'd assume this was a strong business. And obviously, denim and Western culture having this global resurgence. Have they just not been able to capitalize on that properly? 
So Levi's is one of these unassailable brands that is sort of okay no matter what. I mean, you could really run it into the ground if you tried hard enough, but they have a the guy who's been running it for the last 10 years, Chip Berg, is a brand manager from PG and he knows how to maintain, he knows how to maintain a brand. So it's not doing terribly. Their their sales are growing on a pretty regular basis. He's done a good job of taking more of the business direct. The sort of philosophy in retail now is you want to be in multi-brand retailers for marketing and also for distribution, especially in regions of the world where you don't know the customer as well, but you want to have more of your business be direct to the consumer because the margins are, are bigger, et cetera. So he's done an okay job. The issue with Levi's is that it is such an iconic brand and it could be, it used to be bigger than Nike. Nike is I did definitely over $30 billion a year now. I haven't looked in a while, but Levi's, their market cap is close to six. So their annual sales is far lower than that. So think about in the 90s, Levi's was bigger than Nike and Nike has trumped it by multiples. Why did that happen? And I think it has to do with not really just having the infrastructure to be able to blow it out. And especially in the last 10 years, in some ways, denim has been hurt by the rise of leggings and athleisure as an everyday thing you wear. But on the other hand, it's still something where people own multiples and they're more expensive than leggings in many cases, not always. But so there's been this rise in designer denim in the last 20 years. Levi's tried to get into that, but sort of pulled out. And when you look at their balance sheet, they have a lot of debt and they just don't have that much cash flow to cover it. Like they're they're able to, and I'm sure they could just raise more debt if they needed to, but it definitely feels like the kind of thing that would benefit from a take private and kind of work out everything. It They only went public in 2019. That was clearly to raise more money. And it was sort of at a time when there were actually a bunch of denim brands that were, that were trying to go public. And it's very bureaucratic. The I know a lot of people have worked there over the years and they're good, like I said, at maintaining, but in terms of sort of accelerating growth and and really capitalizing on the fact that it's a brand that people love so much all over the world. Like the other day, you and I were talking about those Levi's t-shirts that are really popular in Europe. Everybody wears these logo t-shirts. And it, there's just so much more they could do with it. And so it does feel like, especially if their profits were down a lot this last quarter and, and over the year, and they just just said that it's going to be down more than they had expected for the whole of, of this next fiscal year. So it just feels like there is an opportunity there to kind of restructure the business and get it in better shape. Again, I think Chipberg came in 2011. It had been run by someone who had been with the company for a long time that was really close with the family. The family is still very involved. And so whenever you have that sort of thing, I'm sure in many industries, but in fashion, there's a lot of situations where it's a family run business, but it's public or the family doesn't own the whole thing, but they control it or they just have a ton of influence. And so it's just really complicated. And there is a lot of opportunity there. So even if the conversations I heard that the Teton Ridge team were having were kind of misunderstood, maybe? I mean, the people that I talked to were like, yeah, he said that he wants to buy it someday. 
his team says that is not true. That never happened. And these are people I've known for a long time. So, I, you know, it's it's complicated. But whatever it is, there's an opportunity there to capitalize on this like cultural thing that's happening further and that isn't going to go away anytime soon. I mean, the American West is a very fraught concept, but if someone could sort of unite it and really lean into the things that the nostalgia of it in a modern way, there is like a ton of opportunity to make money. Yeah. And like you said, Tull might not be the guy to do this. Teton Ridge is currently this live events holding company. It's not really set up to be a operating company that that buys up and streamlines distressed businesses. But to your point, there, there's clearly something in the water that these conversations are taking place, signaling that you know maybe Levi's will become a target at some point for somebody to come in and try to do something different with this business. And it also just signals Tull's ambitions in the space. There's so much money to be made and taking something that's really potent in the culture right now, both in the US and globally, and finding ways to monetize it better. Lauren, as always, thanks for coming by. This was totally fascinating. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.